0: Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. In this podcast, my guest is Professor Catherine Isbister from the Department of Computational Media at the University of California, Santa Cruz. This podcast is a little longer than usual, but I can promise you it'll be worth it. Catherine talks about her experiences working across three continents and in industry and academia. She also talks about reflecting on your fit to an organization and recognizing when that changes and about family, and about how she lives out her commitment to work-life balance and having fun in her research practice. So thank you, Catherine, for joining me today. You're welcome. Uh, Introduce yourself to people. Do you want to just give us a little bit of a background of where you've come from and your quick sort of potted career trajectory?
1: Sure, I can try. Um, Let's see. I got my PhD at Stanford University. It was actually in communication rather than in computer science, but while I was there, I uh, took all of the human-computer interaction courses that were on offer and I worked with people like Terry Winograd and David Kelly who was one of the founders of IDEO and got very excited about doing that sort of design work to the extent that I actually took a year off because I wasn't sure when to finish Mm -hmm. my PhD and went and worked as a practicing designer and in, in the Silicon Valley there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took a job at a, a company called Fitch, which was a design consultancy. And from there, I went to a, a web specialty firm called Vivid Studios and, you know, worked on early websites for companies like Infoseek and um, Microsoft and that sort of thing. Wow. Uh, but at a certain point, yeah. I realized I'd gotten used to the idea of having a PhD and got excited about the research. But and had it. So, so so you did this after your PhD? No, I, I started the PhD, and then uh, at a certain point, uh, I had a conversation with my advisor, Cliff Nass, mm, yeah. and he uh, he and I were having trouble settling me on a PhD topic. Ah, familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, familiar and, he, challenge. and he actually said to me, he, he said, you know, I think you kind of have this Ivy League brat syndrome. You're not sure what you want to study. You're a bright person. He's like, why don't you take a year off and think about it? So he helped me fill out the paperwork to get my master's because I'd come in straight from... I didn't have a master's. I'd got my undergrad, worked for a couple of years, and then came in to do both. So in that program you did a... It was a a program
0: that encompassed the equivalent of master's as part of the PhD.
1: Yeah, so the way the program at Stanford worked was uh, you could be accepted and have an offer, and if you didn't have a master's, you could take it along the way, which is what I was planning to do. Uh, So I said, okay, uh, yeah, I'm going to take a year off, and I got this job up in San Francisco. It was just this very exciting time, right when the web was just getting going, Mm just really heady, exciting for young people, very fun. Mm-hmm. And and it was good because it helped clarify for me, you know, why would I want to have a PhD? What might I get out of it? And, and by the end, I had come up with a topic. So he, at that time, he was really heads down on the media equation, this mm-hmm. research paradigm. He was working on this book. And so all of us were, uh, he was having us come up with studies that fit this paradigm. And so that's where we were butting heads because I, I just couldn't figure out something I wanted to ask that fit the paradigm, right? Uh, but eventually I found something and I said, here, what about this? And he said, yeah, that sounds good. So we kind of mutually signed off on it and, um, and I finished up. So it's an interesting tension, isn't it, sort of finding a PhD
0: topic? doing it with the supervisor who can support you and to what extent you have the freedom to define your own topic because you're the one who's got to live it and do it absolutely and also fit in where that matters in the particular lab
1: yeah and too i think it has to do with the trajectory of your advisor so at that time cliff was he was not a tenured professor he was tenure track and this This uh, media equation was a joint venture with a tenured professor. And so there were a lot of very complex dynamics. And, of course, he was trying to get tenure at Stanford, very difficult process, Mm. so everything he did needed to be very Mm. precisely tuned. I don't think I understood any of that at the time. I mean, I I got my PhD quite young, so uh, a lot of it was over my head. But But it's interesting to understand that from this
0: perspective, that it makes sense that for him, for his strategic purposes, having everyone in the lab... You know, working towards that same agenda was important.
1: Absolutely. But at the same time, he was a very generous, intelligent, and sweet person in advising. And so, you know, he was flexible, you know. So I think he he did a perfect job with me, you know, sort of saying, okay, go off and think about things. And, but you how know. did you
0: handle being called an Ivy League brat?
1: <laughs> I love well, that. That's... It was kind of like a flattering insult, right? Because okay. I didn't actually... I went to University of Chicago undergrad, which is not technically an Ivy. It's actually a an aspirational school. Like, they they have these T-shirts that say... Harvard, University of Chicago, of East. So clearly, they have a little bit of an inferiority complex. So I think I was simultaneously mildly insulted and complimented by mm-hmm. it, and I thought, huh, okay, well, uh, all right, I guess I'll wear that you know, badge for a little mm-hmm. while and think about it, because you know. Yeah. So 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 I went back. I finished the PhD, and then I actually did a postdoc for a year in Japan, and I worked in uh, NTT, which was at that time, the telecom monopoly in Japan. Mm-hmm. They had a basic research lab outside of Kyoto. Um, and I worked with this really interesting kind of uh, sort of Americanish uh, Japanese professor who was very vibrant and vocal compared to a lot of his colleagues and had this thing he called the open lab. So, um, so I worked with them for a year I can ask how you got there. Oh, that's a funny story. So, Toru, who run, ran the lab, he came to visit our lab group. So, Cliff would often have people come through. And um, on that particular day, I wasn't particularly dressed up. And uh, there was another colleague of mine, fellow graduate student, who was very polished, very dressed up. And I was sort of irritated that he paid more attention to her questions and comments than mine. And... And um, I don't know. I, so I ended up writing this note to Cliff, and I said, I said, you know, I, I feel like we didn't all get a chance to represent our work that well to Toru. And, you know, what if, what if one of us wanted to do a postdoc in his lab? And, and Cliff turned around and wrote to Toru, who then said, I would love to have a postdoc in my lab from your group and then extended me an invitation. So it went from me just kind of mildly complaining mm. in a vague way about mm. something I wasn't even sure what to suddenly having this really interesting opportunity and I, I just went for it. I was like, well, okay then. That, that seems like a really nice thing to do. I think I'd like that. Excellent. Yeah.
0: So a good year there. In yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think research-wise it was really good. Culturally, it was a big shock for me being a female researcher and uh, I mean that was an interesting experience I would say but not necessarily an easy one. Mm -hmm. Um, So what what would you say were the key lessons that you learned from that then? uh, I had to learn a lot of flexibility in dealing with my colleagues there to understand for example I had a, a PhD student who was working with me but I quickly learned that If I wanted to give him something to do, I had to send him an email because if I told him in person, it was humiliating for him to be given instruction by a woman. And so it was much better for me to do it in this kind of hidden way. Mm. And uh, so I had to learn all these little workarounds to deal with the complexities of the cultural hierarchy Mm. and also learn to not take it personally. So I think it gave me more flexibility in dealing with coworkers in a kind of radical way. Yeah. And then what, what happened What after Japan then? Well, so actually, at some point in my PhD, though I wanted to complete it, I decided, you know, I don't think I want to be a professor because the politics seem really intense, and I don't think I, I'm not sure I have the patience for going through the tenure process. So I was pretty committed to not seeking an academic job. And um, so I was looking around for jobs in design, maybe, and Cliff actually was part of a startup at that time. Uh, in San Francisco, yeah. and he, um, they offered me a job to essentially extend the work I did in my dissertation, but in an applied sense. So, I thought, well, what's to lose? You know, mm. I get a little bit yeah. of potential stock. I get to, you know, try out ideas from the thesis, and I'm, you know, I'm working in a place I like. So. So I imagine that could have been
0: really satisfying, seeing stuff that you do in a very academic sort of theoretical sense and actually seeing what happens when the rubber hits the road.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think in some ways it was absolutely like that. Mm -hmm. Um, The first year of working at that startup, uh, we did really interesting installations of intelligent agents Mm -hmm. for various companies and I worked on a voice user interface for BMW for one of their cars. And so I got to really, you know, use all these ideas. But then we got acquired by a slightly larger startup. And the CEO and CTO of that startup were a very different culture, almost anti-intellectual. And the nature of the product changed. So they were doing customer service. And um, they wanted our intelligent agents to replace humans, so I felt like kind of ethically conflicted about it. So it also taught me how fast these uh, startups can Mm -hmm. shift as they quote-unquote pivot, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, at a certain point, it was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is drifting away from, you know, where I thought it would be and where I want to be
0: and yes where you where you feel comfortable being from the sounds of it exactly
1: yeah and so alongside that I I seemed to find myself I kept writing papers and going to little workshops and conferences and then uh, a friend of mine uh, suggested to me I was I was brewing some ideas about extending my work into thinking about game characters and she said you know when I was working on my book I taught a course in the Stanford HCI series and that helped me articulate the material for the book. She's like, you should just propose a course. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. So I did. And they said, yes, a class on game characters. Sure. You do it. And so I did that on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on, on top of working full time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And my workplace was like, well, okay, we'll, you know, we'll let you do mm-hmm. that. Uh, and I realized at that point I was like, you know what? Actually, I like teaching. And you know, not long after that, my uh, the startup I was working for, they decided to fold. Is this is the second startup. No, it's the the, the same one. Th- well, with th- the second th- management th- company, mm-hmm. they decided to fold the San Francisco office. So they gave everybody offers to move to Colorado, which is where they were based, mm-hmm. it, or they gave us sort of a you know parachute, you know, to leave. And I said, oh, I think I'm gonna you know sign off now. And I started thinking, tech is very volatile. I don't know if I want to work in this startup world forever. Mm. Uh, So the whole academic thing seemed a little more appealing and teaching. And so I started to toy with the idea of of going back. What
0: was it in particular about the teaching that grabbed you then?
1: Um, Well, I mean, in the design firm, I really liked working with colleagues on projects. Mm. Um, But what I saw in the design firms is as you went along, you would kind of move up the management chain and the projects wouldn't be as interesting and you wouldn't get this camaraderie and this sort of vibrant new ideas. Mm. And uh, I realized in the classroom that students bring these ideas and influences in and it's just really refreshing. And I realized, oh, okay, so as you get older, being in a university is really nice because you constantly have this influx of young energy and ideas and enthusiasm like even now my students drag me into oh let's use slack or you know what you haven't tried instagram and you know they sort of force me to stay yeah. like yeah. attuned and yeah. flexible like cuz i see how they do it yeah. so it's not just that i read about something online it's like i see socially mm. something unfolding mm. And then I get to learn from it and then mm. add in my ideas. So I just realized, oh, that's a really nice ecosystem. Mm. I think mm. I want to hang out there. Yeah. So at first I was only applying for jobs in the Bay Area. And yeah. at some point... Academic my, jobs. Yes. At some point my advisor, Cliff, he said, you know, you're never going to... It's like a needle in a haystack. You have to be willing to apply anywhere, mm. you know. So, I, so this, finally this one year I was like, okay... I'm going to apply everywhere and we'll just see what happens. And, and I got a job at Rensselaer Polytechnic, which is upstate New York. It's, you know, in Troy, New York. And I packed everything up and headed up there. So it was a big, it was a big, it was a big kind of one of those forks in the road. Yeah. You know, where you're like, well, is it worth it? Is it not? And, but, you know.
0: So, what were the factors that waited it for you to take that fork?
1: Well, I I guess what I said before about tech, like I realized, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I think I understand where this Mm -hmm. path is going. And I also thought, you know, if it doesn't work out, I think there's a two or three year window where I could always go back. Mm -hmm. So, and then, you know, RPI was at HCI in games, which was kind of the area I was in, and... I thought, well, this is a perfect trial, and the other thing is they actually valued my industry experience, so they gave me an associate without tenure post. So they mm-hmm. kind of they said, oh, you'll only have to be on the tenure track for three years. So I thought, well, okay, I, I can survive that. <laughs> so yeah. So how long were you there then? I, what? I was there three and a half years. Okay. Yeah. So got my book done.
0: So this through. was the book that you started developing up. yes conceptually through the teaching
1: yeah exactly yeah Yeah, i I had no idea how long books took to write at that time i mean i must i don't know i published a book in 2006 and i think i probably started working on it 2002 so but you know that's actually
0: working on it not just having the idea
1: yeah 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 so because it just takes a lot of time to fully articulate and then to go research and so now i know that yeah. You know, the last one I wrote just took like five years so mm, yes. and this is that was your third book yeah, well, Dad the second <laughs> solo authored and the fifth book I think let me wait a minute, let me think one, two, four yeah five goodness me that 's productive
0: <laughs> So <clears throat> did you end up getting tenure in
1: the, I did yes, I got tenure at RPI yeah, yeah. and, and um, how how did you find the tenure process Um. I was pleasantly surprised. I feel like I've had a really good experience with engineering schools in the sense that they the places I've worked have valued the mix of practice and theory work that I've done and you know I'm kind of a an oddball in terms of the way I publish like I've had things in art exhibitions ever you know i I write books, but I also do conference papers and journal articles you know so mm that could look like sort of a motley assortment. Mm. For example, to communication, the field where I got my PhD, Mm. that would be a little bit like, huh. But the places I've been, I've been very fortunate to be in interdisciplinary departments where all of that makes sense and seems to count and, you know. So you didn't have to really argue your own case. No, Which no. Which many
0: people do do, don't they? As you yes. said, if it was back in Stanford. Exactly. In that, in the communications no, department. and I
1: had terrific, really sweet and wonderful mentors at yeah. at a RPI, like yeah. a couple of older faculty who really took me under their wing mm. and, like, helped shape the case mm. and helped me understand expectations. So it was actually not a bad process. So. I'd be interested in hearing more about the mentoring. You know, did mm-hmm. you
0: approach people directly and ask them, or was it something that happened informally? Did you have any structure around that process? Well, who drove
1: it? The, I mean, so the chair who recruited me to the job, he had come... He actually came out of retirement to take this position, mm-hmm. and um, he was running this research lab that I was going to be sitting in and doing my own research, so I think he felt... A lot of sense of ownership and wanting me to succeed. So he was really great. And he just was a natural mentor. Like he, he, he was the pinch hitter advisor. You know, there's always one that gets the students who just bounce around. So he could finish anybody out. I mean, he was really impressive. Mm-hmm. And then he, the other guy, uh, they were actually really good friends from uh, graduate school and they both had ended up. And the other guy had been an RPI his whole career. But the chair had come in out of retirement to sort of pinch hit and like reformulate the department and, you know, his friend had brought him in, so the two of them were just like the nicest, most mm-hmm. positive, you know, well-published, really nice people. So I think I just got super lucky. Yeah. And they, so they just, they just took me under their wing. They're like, okay, yeah. do this, do that. And, you know, I think they were happy to have another colleague yeah. in their area and, Yeah. yeah. So you moved on from there because you
0: said three and a half years. So there's an end.
1: So there was a turn. So and this was actually kind of scary. So right before I did go up for tenure, um, that chair there was sort of a like a coup in the department, and he stepped down and. This other woman took over, which at first I was really anxious about because I wasn't sure how it was going to go. She turned out to be really nice to me, although there was just this kind of vicious infighting stuff going on. So that combined with some other things, which included our culture shock at being in upstate New York. My husband's German, Mm -hmm. never had a driver's license before we moved there. thought he could bike everywhere and then almost got killed and realized, oh my God. And then from there, it was just downhill. yeah. Yeah. So he was really eager to get out. Mm-hmm. So, so the summer, I'm trying to think how the timeline went. In any case, I don't remember, but I applied. Yeah. I saw a position open at ITU Copenhagen in Denmark. And I thought, okay, that's not so far from Germany. Supposedly they have great you know, social services and stuff. And I said to my husband, well, what do you think? Should I apply? He's like, well, yeah, I mean, let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up getting the job. So we moved everything. And my, like, one-year-old daughter over to Copenhagen, which was quite, quite an endeavor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which in the end, I wasn't there very long. Uh, not because the, my colleagues weren't great, but because the cultural fit wasn't good. Mm -hmm. And then also I had interviewed before I left for a position in New York and then they offered me the job. So then I had this decision point of, okay, I'm going to stay in this new situation that is clearly mm. not a good fit for yeah. us mm. because I've just gotten here mm. or am I just going to mm. sort of bite the bullet and turn mm. around and go back to the States? Um, so these have been a few examples
0: where you've been very self-aware of your own position in a, in a context and mm-hmm. how the fit is mm-hmm. and not afraid to make a decision to say, you know what, it's not working.
1: Yeah. But it sounds easy to say now. Um, Looking back, was it easy at the time? No, it was was really hard. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that was going on at that time was my father had gotten Alzheimer's and he was Mm -hmm. getting worse and I wasn't sure what was going to happen with my family. So I, I felt like in that case I had all these pressures. Like I was feeling like for the family it just wasn't good. I felt like I'd ventured too far, kind of, I guess I would say. And in the end, I actually worked out an arrangement with ITU where I did consulting for them. So I sort of had a slow transition where I did like one month a year of consulting for several years and kind of worked with people there. And so I don't think we left on bad terms, but I I think I have realized over my career that you're much happier if what you're doing is mission critical and valued by the organization and also that can change and yes. you, sometimes you have to catch up with that yes. and that can be hard to if you've been very a very good fit and then something happens you get a new dean or some some new like something changes in mm. the structure of things to sort of realize wait this this isn't working anymore you know, and i have just come to realize, yeah, no, it's good to just be honest about that, yeah. and if you have mobility, consider going somewhere else. You but know? your mobility
0: was still a little bit tricky because you had a young daughter and yes, a and a partner, a husband, so it's, it's, it wasn't as if you were, it was just you and your suitcase, so no it was, that's there very was still true. brave decisions to make
1: well, and, and it, important it really. Decisions. One thing that helped me was that my husband uh, decided at a certain point, when I met him, he was doing his own business. Mm. And the move to RPI was a shocker because it wasn't an urban community. So the type of work he did just didn't work there. And by the time we moved to Denmark and then back to Brooklyn, he just decided, I'm going to be a stay-at-home dad. Mm. And I'm going to be the advance organizer (laughs) for all of this chaos. So it kind of took both of us being adaptable uh, and I mean for him the goal was always to get back to California after we left so that was like a long standing uh, you know uh, light motif yeah. in the whole thing yeah. so before we move on to New York just going back to
0: RPI and you said that when you left there you had a one year old daughter mm-hmm. which means that you had a pregnancy in a birth and a young child yes during a tenure track process yes
1: that's true yeah it was funny because I had a colleague at the time and uh she waited until her case was approved mm. then she got pregnant and I I ended up getting pregnant the year I was going up and so it was really funny because I was kind of I wasn't announcing it to people and then at some point somebody in the department just sort of went oh you're pregnant and I was like oh yep I am you know but it was as my case was making its way up through the chain and I just thought well at this point what can I you know it's not like you know I can influence things and it's not like it's marring my productivity towards the case Mm -hmm. but it was a little scary yeah and how did how did you handle you know working full-time and with a baby yeah well RPI is one of those places that gives you a semester off which was great And then, honestly, the semester after that, I worked very minimally. Mm -hmm. And so, at at some level, I felt a little guilty, but then I also felt, you know what, it's the problem of the U.S. of not investing sufficiently in this stage in women's lives, and so if I have to take a little space for myself, like, it's going to be paid back over the terms of my career, you know, and I I think societies in Europe realize that and then distribute that cost, Mm -hmm. and so you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, you have to, you have to take care of yourself and your family.
0: So I assume when you said you, f- you felt a little guilty, that was towards your colleagues or the faculty. Yeah. Or but if yeah. you hadn't have done it, you probably would have felt guilty towards your family and your daughter. You're and
1: exactly right. Yeah. So you have to just sort of choose. Choose and, your guilt. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the other thing too, I feel like about moving places. Mm-hmm. I think, um, people have different kinds of careers. So I feel like for my colleagues who are still at RPI and stay there the whole time, it's hard to deal with people who come and go. You know, they feel a sense of, uh, like you didn't stick it out for the long run, right? So I think uh, some of it is how you think of the arc of a career Mm -hmm. and, you know, what community you're part of. And I think I've always thought of myself as part of the larger, like, global Mm -hmm. community of practitioners, not so much as... I mean, of course, when I'm at a university, I try to be a good citizen Mm. and do my part. But it's not like I thought, okay, yes, I'm going to be at RPI my whole career. Mm. I'm going to invest deeply in this institution. Mm. But for some people, that is really how they see things. And that's valuable, too.
0: It's interesting having a perspective of being part of a larger global community Mm -hmm. in the first definition of your own identity. And you've certainly lived that out, having been on the West Coast, the East Coast of, of America, in Japan, in Denmark. That's true. And you had That's a later true. stint in Sweden as well?
1: Yeah. No, I think... Um, so when I decided to go back into academia, yeah. I did this... There's this book called Zen and the Art of Making a Living, and yeah. I actually worked myself through all these exercises, and I realized I keep publishing even though I'm in working in industry. There's no reason for it. Why am I doing this? And I realized... Because I really like going to conferences and talking to people from all over the world about interesting ideas. But you could so, go to conferences without publishing, without the effort of publishing. No, the, uh, but it's not the same. Like, no, I don't no. know. Like, I, yeah, it just felt like that was where the action was, sort mm-hmm. of. I don't know. So.
0: But you obviously, there was something about the writing as well that you really liked. Because that's, that's considerable effort on top of working. No, it's true. Like,
1: well, you know, my undergraduate degree was in English literature. Yeah. And my first job out of college was writing for a zoo. So I kind of started out with writing. Mm. So, <laughs> someone who loves writing papers. I do. do I, like, I like wordsmithing. Yeah. Yes. I don't always love, uh, let's say, I don't always love the rhetorical styles mm. we're forced to mm. use in our writing. Like, you know, what evidence counts or doesn't and, you know, mm. that sort of thing. But I, I do like wordsmithing. It's fun so what what writing tips would you give us? You
0: know, if someone who loves writing i'd love to hear?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing is to make a study of what the actual genre of writing is, and I think academic paper writing is a genre, and each conference is a subgenre. I was just going to say that as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and same thing for the granting agencies, and so I think it's really helpful to take a super close look I always have my students like look at a canonical ideally a best paper and when you switch conferences you got to start all over again you know because WIST is profoundly different than Kai in how things are presented and you know even to the extent of you know puns in titles or not or you know uh, must have front loaded one sentence idea or that scene is naive and like kind of hacky. Yeah. Right. There's just these yeah. big differences. So. so really getting to know the community you want to speak with. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think that's important. And, and I think reviewing helps yeah. too.
0: Reviewing for the new community? Yeah. So yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Like, to, like volunteering for that and really, because it's hard for us to externalize and really see how other people will mm. see the writing. And if you go through the active exercise with the, with the stakes, mm. I think it helps you figure out mm oh, yes, no, that's not going to go over well. As much as I like the idea, it's just mm. not going to fly. Yeah. yeah. So you have worked in
0: lots of places. Um, how do you compare them, you know, in different cultural contexts or academic contexts?
1: Yeah, well, they're all so different. I mean, if, for example, I think of, you know, ITU and Copenhagen versus NYU, right? Mm. I mean... Um, Things like, are people in the office a lot or not? Mm -hmm. You know, things like, um, I realized, too, uh, something that mattered to me, and that's part of why I moved to UC Santa Cruz, Mm -hmm. is having a critical mass of Mm -hmm. people in your sub-area for me, is really helpful. Mm-hmm. So when I, was at ITU, when I was at RPI, there was a lot of HCI and games. At ITU, it was a games research center, so that was great. And they were very receptive to HCI. They had a, a sort of sister department that had HCI. At NYU, I was really by myself in the computer science department in the School of Engineering as an HCI practitioner. Mm-hmm. And then I was cross-appointed into the game center, which is part of the School of the Arts, and so the game center was a studio practice group. Many of them didn't have PhDs, the faculty, and had no interest in research. The CS department, nobody did HCI, and the classical CS guys kind of were skeptical as to whether it even belonged. Mm, so yes. that was an incredibly difficult. Yeah. Uh, I was like, heavily involved in service in two departments, neither of which really grasped what I was doing. So as long as I had the support at the Dean's level for this kind of interdisciplinary center I'd built up, things were great. But the minute that changed, it was just utterly exhausting. The amount of politics I had to do. And so Santa Cruz, which had this lovely new department in computational media with people I'd known for years, I was like, you know what? That sounds wonderful, (laughs) I think I'm gonna go there.
0: And that's where you are
1: now. Yes, exactly, Yeah. yeah.
0: So, looking back, what have been the biggest challenges for you in establishing a career or the biggest lessons you've learned?
1: Um, That's a great question. I think one thing I've learned is that being an interdisciplinary researcher with sort of broad ideas uh, can mean that it takes you a while to find the right ways to convey the value of your work. Mm -hmm. Because you don't
0: fit some sort of... An easily accepted mainstream that doesn't require any explanation. Exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. And so, uh, it's really help- For me, it was really helpful to get mentorship from people who understood how to frame work. You know, how to actually position that kind of work and what kind of evidence you need to present and which communities will be receptive to it. And that's an ongoing process Mm -hmm. for me. So Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the biggest challenge I've had. And it's just due to the nature of the questions I want to ask. Even way back to grad school, if you look at taking a year off, that was me struggling with this Mm -hmm. paradigm and kind of saying... Mm -hmm. I kept telling Cliff we would have these meetings and he'd be like, "I know. Here's the study you could do." And I would tell him, "Now you've killed my question. It's dead on the table. The the way you just dissected, I don't I don't care about the answer." And we would just have these endless, you know, so so I think like also figuring out methodologies you're comfortable mm. with yeah. is if you have cross-disciplinary questions can be challenging mm. too. So
0: So there's been a real commitment in following through on what you believe in and whether that's been taking a year off or leaving a department where you're not feeling at home or, you know, continuing to fight and argue for particular positions or research questions that you want to ask.
1: Yeah. Did did it always feel like you were that certain about it? I guess I... I guess I sort of feel life is too short I, I think i'm I'm a pretty decisive person, yeah, and so when I start to feel something doesn't feel right, uh, I'm looking to get closure on settling that Good. Yeah. so you know it's not that I can't sit with something for a while, but then at a certain point, I just start looking for solutions, mm-hmm. and so I think moving institutions is one way to solve those problems, you know. I think you can also hang in and some people have a lot of patience for internal politics and mm. playing the long game and and people come and go and trends come and go. And so, you know, certainly if your life is in a situation where you really can't relocate, that's not the way to handle the problem, yeah. right? Yes, you and have it's, to be realistic for the, for the
0: situation that you're exactly, in. Exactly,
1: yeah. but I think it's also, like, I guess I discovered early on that if you can think in that way, it can be very invigorating and also good for everybody. It's not like, you know, there won't be another person who takes mm-hmm. that post that yeah. you left. I mean, in this current climate, there are many people looking for jobs, you know, so there's no reason not to, you know, shift things around if that's what makes the most sense. And you have done well over your career, you know, as, it's, as
0: it has happened to have worked out with, with the various changes. And it seems to be incredibly productive, you know, with the number of books and papers and exhibitions and <laughs> starting up labs that you talk about. And you also have a family. So how do you negotiate you know, the whole, you know the, the whole jargon about work-life balance? But how do you negotiate those boundaries to be so productive and still sort of be with family?
1: Well, I mean, one thing is I, I don't work weekends and I try not to work late. Nights. I mean, I, I set pretty strict boundaries on family time mm-hmm. and also in the summer. Um, so practically, what does that mean, setting strict boundaries? Well, it means that I, I learned, once Nona was born, I learned to uh, work within a sort of like eight to five weekdays boundary. Mm-hmm. I mean, the downside of that is I don't do a lot of water cooler chat. Mm-hmm. So I think it can affect your networking you know, within your institution, but I was sort of willing to make that trade-off to get the work done during the hours and then be there in the evenings and weekends. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really helped. And then I think um, my husband's German, so we've always gone to Germany for part of the summer, so my daughter's always been traversing contacts mm-hmm. and seeing that as a part of life. Now, now that we're settled in Santa Cruz, she's nine now, I, I would not leave. You know, until she is done with high school, mm-hmm. right? So, so I this think is a new
0: phase in your life. Exactly.
1: Yes. Be- be- you deal with politics
0: if they. Happen. I will. <laughs>
1: I will. I can. I can do it now. I can be zen about it. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I think kids when they're younger, there is a lot of shuffling people do, but I yeah. think at a certain point yeah. it's pretty important. So I wouldn't do that to her now. So it sounds like the.
0: It, being very disciplined about working eight to five. If I if I can just reinterpret that, is about being very disciplined about how you spend every minute of that day. Because you, you said about not yes. having so much time for the water cooler chats, which yes. points to the fact that we might be some of us might be at work for 12 hours or something. But you know, how much of that time is actually productive, or what do we define as productive as and important, and how do we prioritize water cooler versus whatever other activity we need to do
1: well and I think too I wouldn't be surprised if there's more drift now that I'm at Santa Cruz because as I was saying about NYU I didn't have colleagues where I'd have these productive cross-fertilization conversations Um, but at Santa Cruz that's much more likely Mm. so I think when it's causing that to happen it's really Mm. great to have Mm. water cooler conversations whereas the kind that aren't so productive are the sort of Chewing on politics, or I mean, also, you know, if you form friendships at work, mm-hmm. that's great, that's yeah. not a problem, right? Yeah. I think for me, though, I just realized I have all of this family and extended friend and family network that I need yeah. to preserve. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the way I do it is I figure out when is my best hours for writing, and, and when then is that? in the morning, yeah. And usually, the very best time is right after a vacation or a weekend, like that first slot is when. I can think of almost anything yeah. really creative. So I know that, and I block that time. Then everything else comes in the other time, right? And I know that Friday afternoons are crap, and they're not good for much mm-hmm. of anything. You know, mm-hmm. so you yeah. just get realistic about... Yeah.
0: And do you do things like plan the night before what you're going to do the next day so that you are productive and disciplined, or do you just know it? Oh, yeah. I have,
1: it? a. Or? I have like... Uh, I set up the whole week, I have a little journal, and I set up the whole week of what I'm going to do all week, and then I have, every Friday I do a week in review, so I look at what actually I did get done, and I didn't, and then I kind of troubleshoot based on that, because otherwise weeks can go by, and I have no sense of, and then lately I've I've been like kind of categorizing those things, because when I was associate professor at NYU, I got way too caught up in service duties. Mm -hmm. Mm Uh, Because I thought I had to solve all these things. And so lately I tag things as research-intensive things. And that has to be the majority of what I do every week. And if I start to drift off of that, then I I just back off.
0: So you have a strong sense of what the balance of the components of your work is. Mm -hmm. And I really like this sort of Friday review back on the week and troubleshooting
1: yeah and then i make sure to i actually like write my own assessment every week i sound so compulsive, but and i would like make a point of praising myself if i did a good job because the other thing because i used to always beat myself up i'd be like yeah sure you did those five things what about the other three things and then you don't want to work anymore because that's so
0: important to do it is because one of the challenges in academia is we can always be doing more things
1: yes yeah and nobody sits you down and says okay that was enough Geraldine yeah you did good go home and take a break and so I think I do that to myself I say yep you did a good job this week you get to take the weekend off and it's it's really nice it feels like liberating mm. yeah. so that sounds like a nice closure to the week as well that really
0: enables you to step into the weekend
1: yes. leaving
0: that behind and
1: that's why at that same time i try to plan the next week yeah. so that I've, I've queued it all up i know what's coming because yeah. the other thing i think it does is it drops the things into my subconscious on yes. that friday afternoon that need to be percolating for monday mm-hmm. so that i'm ready mm-hmm. you
0: know not in the subconscious in the way of, oh, I can't forget to do that because it's written down in the list. Exactly. It's that sort of positive percolating rather than the stressing. Yes. About, you know, yeah. That's the goal anyway. Yeah. That sounds really amazing. Um, there was something that, we had, that you had said yesterday when we were just talking informally about you know, when you were working 8 to 5... Sometimes feeling guilty about telling people that. Can you just say a little bit around
1: that? Sure. Like I, I think I don't know how it is in Europe, but in the U.S., there's this culture around. Uh, oh, I worked more than you worked. And oh this no, kind I of, worked even more. Than exactly. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm working yeah. sixty-hour weeks, yeah. and and I I actually did tell someone one time. I remember one time saying, oh, I'm only working this amount, and they got kind of upset with me, and I realized, okay. Revealing that you actually have work-life balance, uh, it, well, it makes people angry if they don't, and they're working, overworking themselves. It kind of makes them question the narrative. And um, it also sort of uh, makes people feel bad sometimes because mm. they think, well, why am I overworking and that person's not, mm. right? So instead of it becoming a discussion about a better model for working, I think it can sometimes become... Uh, this like implicit critique of someone else's practice and also the other side of it when I was more junior was uh, I was scared that Mm. people would think I wasn't to be taken seriously being a woman and then once I had a child it's like oh no she's gone out to pasture she's not going to do anything but you've clearly
0: been able to negotiate a way of working that's very productive very effective where you are sought after you're in a great position now and you're a great role model for showing that it can work
1: yes i i think everyone should have work life balance i i just i think most of the research on when you're really like on your deathbed and they ask people you know they don't say i wish i had been on one more service committee for a conference i wish i'd worked one more sunday (laughs) but it's always
0: challenging to keep that perspective in mind In the minutiae of you know the day-to-day challenges and i think that's
1: a good reason to reflect on your productivity and praise yourself yeah because i think one thing about academia is you don't get instant positive feedback from someone else like in a design job when i used to work in design You had a manager who would review your work and say yes wow job, you yeah. know you did good and they had a good overview of how productive you were compared to others but we just don't mm. have that in academia. so you, mm. you kind of we it, can start it we can start being
0: um, more conscious of praising people and saying to people you've that's good
1: enough or that's enough yes like, yeah
0: you could do more but what at what cost? What exactly.
1: No, I think, and I really like I like this podcast because I think also people exposing and talking about mm. these like pressures and tensions mm. as they move through the practice of their yeah. work is another way to to notice and to say to yourself, oh, okay, it's not just me. Yeah, it's other people have yeah. these issues. Yeah. yeah. So we have gone way over the time <laughs> that I sort of try to keep
0: these at. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, thank you to anyone who's still listening now but I hope you still are because it's been brilliant um are there any final reflections or thoughts that you have that you would just want to throw out there for people in the spirit of sharing
1: um I guess I'd say I think you have to really check in and make sure you're having fun with your research practice
0: that's so important isn't it Mm -hmm.
1: yeah because if you're not having fun something's off yeah you know should be the most amazing job to have the intellectual freedom, setting your agenda and playing with young people to make cool stuff. So if it's not happening for you, I think, you know, get on holiday, look for a new job, like find a way out. (laughs) I think that's
0: a great note to end on. So I hope everyone's going off looking for (laughs) what's fun about their work and creating it as fun if it's not. So thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. As often happens, interesting discussions continued after the recording stopped. One thing that I think's worth adding here is that Catherine talked about how she has a weekly Skype call with a colleague and they act as mentors for each other and discuss work things and hold each other accountable and support one another. I think that sounds like a really brilliant idea. She also asked me to clarify that she has four, not five, books. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, you can subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. You can also go to the website www.changingacademiclife.com.